Hello and welcome to the Road to Adepec series by Energy Voice, brought to you by Adepec 2023, the world's largest energy exhibition and conference. From October the 2nd to the 5th, under the theme of decarbonizing faster together, Adepec will gather leaders and innovators from across the energy ecosystem and beyond to accelerate the path to a lower carbon future. The event is to attract more than 160,000 attendees and 2,200 exhibiting companies. And the conference program will see 1,600 speakers across 350 sessions share their perspectives on the tangible actions and solutions needed to address the biggest climate and energy issues we face today. I'm Ed Reed, an editor at Energy Voice, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Proskovia Nabanja, CEO of the Ugandan National Oil Company, and Ewan McKenzie, Climate Director at IPICA. The topic today is decarbonizing oil and gas quicker. As we head towards Adepec, people will also be thinking of the next big conference, COP28, which will be held just down the road in Dubai. And the theme of Adepec this year dovetails with those COP talks. And I think it's going to be a lot of attention paid to what's discussed. With that interplay between the oil and gas industry and COP, that concept of hydrocarbons but decarbonized feels like a particularly timely question. I'm fortunate, therefore, to have my distinguished guests with me. UNOC, of course, is engaged in development plans around the Lake Albert project, which aims to export oil to markets starting in 2025. The project does face some opposition, but should be transformative for Uganda once oil begins to flow and revenue starts to mount. IPICA, meanwhile, aims to help guide the oil and gas industry towards a brighter future with an eye on climate action and environmental responsibility. IPICA works with a number of companies, including ADNOC, which has recently accelerated its own plans for net zero to 2045. Proskovia, hello. Maybe maybe you could uh, shed some light on, on, on UNOC and what you're doing. Thanks, Ed. The Uganda National Oil Company was established with a role or a mandate to manage the commercial interests of the state on behalf of the state across the oil and gas projects. And uh, of course, we are we have projects in the upstream dealing with development and production. We have partners Total and Sinoc in the upstream developments. We also have investments in the refinery uh, projects we have a participating interest in the East African crude oil pipeline. We have storage terminals, one that is operational, and the other one we are in the phase almost to start construction. We have investments in the petrol-based industrial park, and we also manage on behalf of the state the crude that will be coming out of the oil and gas developments come 2025, so we are structuring the business around crude oil trading. And of course, we also have an obligation towards national content development, where we advocate uh, for national skills development, building the supplier uh, base to be able to tap into the opportunities in the sector, but also building ourselves into an operator in the long term. So it's quite a broad portfolio that we are managing, but we believe we'll return the much anticipated value for our state. And Ewan, perhaps you could bring us up to speed with IPICA. Yeah, so Ed, IPICA has a really interesting and special history. We were formed back in 1974, actually, at the request of the UN Environment Programme. 
Um, and since then, we've gone on to forge impactful relationships with a number of UN organizations, and we take part in some of the, the UN's most important uh, initiatives. And we bring together over 1,000 sustainability experts from our member companies, which includes the integrated oil companies, national oil companies, service suppliers, and other associations. And we partner with experts from the UN, the, the NGO, and the civil society space to share and develop best practice and, gui and guidance on, on, on climate action, environmental responsibility, social performance, and, and sustainability management. It's a really exciting time to be working with sustainability leaders to address um, some of the biggest challenges facing the world. And I'm actually joining you at a really exciting time for IPICA. We're, we're celebrating the uh, the first anniversary of our, of our IPICA principles, which we launched um, last year. And um, these are a condition of membership um, and are grouped around the four strategic pillars of climate, nature, people and sustainability. Uh, and, and the first of which the, really drives performance and support um, for UN conventions. Um, and the second is really about advancing the environmental and social performance of, of member companies' operations. That's a really important step for us, really important step for our members. And it's one which will really um, continue to help the industry contrib contribute towards sustainable development in, across the energy transition going forward. Proskovia, I'm going to start with you. What do you think is the scale of the challenge in decarbonizing oil and gas operations? Uh, thank you so much, Ed. And um, we are at such a time when um, issues related to protecting the environment or our climate are becoming quite uh, apparent, especially for our industry, which is uh, seen as to be quite a big contributor uh, to the carbon emissions. Now, of course, there's a, a big challenge um, in decarbonization, especially for our sector. It's a monumental task. The challenge is even more pronounced, Ed, for countries in the global south, which include Uganda, that are grappling with a dual objective of balancing economic development and environmental sustainability. Of course, our industry is transforming significantly um, driven by the global push towards a low-carbon future. And as oil and gas companies, we are continuously recognizing the need to balance the carbon, uh, to balance the economic needs vis-a-vis -vis reduction in the carbon footprint. And, of course, the need to align with the global climate goals. Uh, for instance, I think, Ed, you've seen quite a number of companies shifting their business models to create more value through downstream customers rather than upstream assets. And this uh, includes diversifying into renewable energy sources such as solar, wind, hydrogen and biofuels. And of course, um, engaging in additional initiatives um, to protect the environment. The problem for countries or the challenge for countries like Uganda and the entire global south is further compounded by the need to balance the economic growth with sustainability. And as Uganda, you've rightly put it, we seek to harness our oil and gas resources to, uh, to spur industrial growth, create jobs, of course, improve infrastructure, the living standards, improve balance of payments, and so on and so forth. But this must be done in an environmentally sustainable manner. It comes with uh, its own challenges for sure, but I believe we have um, the ability to do it right for, uh, from the start, especially for a country like ours that is not yet 
uh, producing those resources but anticipates to start producing in 2025. Uh, we have the projected greenhouse emissions with an intensity of about 13 kilograms of CO2 per barrel, which is significantly lower than the industry average of 20 kilograms per barrel of oil equivalent. Um, so we, we believe, yes, it's a challenge for us to address, um, but we can do it better right from the start, knowing that the technology is available globally. And we can also ride uh, on the partnerships that we have to address some of these challenges. So, indeed, to your question, um, it's a challenge to decarbonize oil and gas, but we have a starting point. Not all is lost because we have a responsibility or a moral duty towards uh, Mother Earth. And we have to act as responsible as such. Absolutely. And you and me, I'll bring you in at this point. I mean, I think, I think you know, Proscovia is going to set out, I suppose, the uh, sort of, I suppose, in, in, in some ways, uh, Uganda's got a kind of a, a, a blank slate in terms of sort of starting up its oil production. You and what are your thoughts about that, the sort of the broader challenge for the industry? And obviously, which, which kind of combines kind of a legacy of, uh, you know, 100 years odd of, of, of oil production that, that we need to sort of start thinking about? Yeah, so I, mean, I, th- I think at the, the, the global level, you know, oil and gas plays a hugely important role in the the energy system globally. And the oil and gas operations that uh, we we have today are are accounting for for about 5.1 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, or or 15% of total energy-related emissions globally. So the scale of the challenge is is significant. And those emissions are really kind of resulting from the the production, the transport, and the processing of oil and gas. And in the business, that's what we would refer to as scope one and two emissions. And the use of the oil and gas itself is probably accounting for about another sort of 40% of of emissions globally. Um, And and to put this into a, a kind of context in terms of capital investment. The IEA recently kind of estimated that the, the upfront investment of around about, about 600 billion um, US dollars is, is required to half the intensity of oil and gas operations globally by 2030. So in terms of the, the global challenge, that's what we're, we're dealing with in terms of absolute emissions uh, and, and the, the capital investment required to address it. And I suppose, you know, sort of, you know, obviously with the with the IEA, with that, that sort of, you know, fairly substantial number, but I suppose, you know, relative to the scale of things, what sort of steps do you think we should take now or can we take now to to kind of start reducing emissions? Yeah, I mean, so oil and gas producers have, have a really clear opportunity to address the the challenge of, of reducing emissions from their activities, and there's a series of, of ready to implement and, and, and cost effective measures out there. Really, the top of the list, sort of tackling methane emissions is is hugely important, um, and then following that, addressing non emergency flaring. Then we're looking at levers like the electrification of upstream facilities with low emissions electricity, and then looking at equipping. Um, oil and gas processes with carbon capture and storage, uh, and then moving to kind of expand the use of hydrogen from low emissions um, electrolysis and refineries, perhaps. Um, These really will play a a hugely important role in the next kind of 20 years. As we look into the, the, the kind of the short term to 2030, but then really methane management and flaring management will play the biggest role in, in driving greenhouse gas emissions reduction. And, you know, and again, if we look to some of the, the figures from the IEA, um, they're probably expecting about 260 billion to be invested in electrification, about 100 billion in CCS, and, and then maybe about 80 billion in, in the hydrogen, methane and flaring. Um, so that's the kind of, again, going back to the capital investment, that, that's the kind of the, the figures that we're looking at. And maybe to give you a couple of specific examples, you know, we could touch on flaring. So 
So there's around 140 billion cubic meters of natural gas um, being flared annually, and that, that's 2022. And that's from the kind of combustion of the, the, the actual gas and, and the methane liquids. Um, and so that's generating a really significant um, CO2 or greenhouse gas footprint around about 500 million tonnes of, of CO2 per annum from that. Um, and so th there's a lot that we can do to tackle that. And IPICA have recently launched um, some guidance on the, uh, the, the management of flaring, looking at the, uh, the upfront um, design considerations when we're designing facilities, looking at how we go about building the right levers into commercial contracts when we're thinking of things from a regulatory or government perspective, uh, and then looking at things from an operational perspective as well. So there's huge opportunity out there um, and it's about getting the, for us the best practice and guidance out there in partnership with uh, folks that we work with, like the World Bank and the, the Global Glass Flaring Reduction Partnership. Prescovia, I mean, I think you and Sir set out some uh, some quite interesting ideas there. I mean, I think you know methane emissions being 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 one of them. Maybe you could shed some light about 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 UNOC and your plans. Obviously, you know the the, the Lake Albert plans, as as mentioned, are are sort of you know gathering steam. Obviously, you're you're sort of hoping to be producing within a couple of years. What what, what steps are you taking in Uganda to uh, try to decarbonize? I think for me, I would put the steps into four categories. Number one is the aspect of technology. Number two, the aspect of policy. Three, partnerships. And four, financing. Now, of course, uh, Ewan has touched on the fundamental aspects of the need to reduce emissions. When we discuss technology, reduction of emissions is twofold. Number one, in the technical planning. Of course, as Uganda, we've tried as much as possible to put um, considerations for environment at the forefront of the technical planning. And this has included um, areas of solarization across uh, some of the installations, especially for the East African uh, crude oil pipeline, and also trying as much as possible to reduce the footprint. Moreover, we are working in a heavily sensitive area. The other one he has touched on is flaring. For Uganda, we have a zero flaring policy. You can't flare unless it's for emergency reasons. So that's one way. Of course, the other way would be investing in capturing the CO2 emissions. I believe we'll go a long way in addressing the issues of uh, climate change if we are aggressive in deploying technologies that capture a CO2 but also technologies that allow us to expand our portfolio beyond oil to other energy uh, systems like solar, wind, hydrogen. That's one way in, in light of technology. Then at policy level, of course, like I said, we have the policy around zero flaring, but also we are being intentional on supporting uh, technologies that are being deployed in the country through supportive policies to allow those investments to be brought into the country. On the issue of partnerships, and I always uh, say this, that there's no reason as to why Uganda or any other country in the global south should reinvent the wheel. If the global north has access to technology that can support the global south to scale up and reduce emissions faster, than, uh, than ever anticipated, then, then why not go for it? Partnerships that foster capacity building, faster, uh, partnerships that foster uh, sharing technology and methods of work that allow us to reduce uh, the emissions. And then finally, financing. Of course, when you're implementing 
uh, clean methods of um, of producing hydrocarbons, it comes with um, capital investments in those technologies. And we all know that the global south, including Uganda, may not have the financing available to deploy some of these technologies. So partnerships that bring financing on the table. I know in Africa, there's the Africa Energy Bank to support uh, deployment of capital uh, towards energy projects. But why not extend that to initiatives around making the environment or the climate better? So I think we have quite a number of uh, steps we can take in terms of technology, policy, partnerships, and supportive uh, financing for us to be able to scale uh, the technologies um, to allow us reduce the emissions. Are there, are there, are there some concrete steps that uh, you can take as, as, as UNOC now? As UNOC, we've launched the Climate Action uh, Plan, uh, which will see us bring together different partners institutional partners, finance partners, technical partners, the local government, the church, to address issues of uh, climate change. And it's our anticipation that through this coalition, we will set out to plant over 40 million trees across the country and ensure that no one is left behind. The oil and gas industry anticipated emissions will not only impact the oil and gas industry or people who deal in the oil and gas industry, it will impact the entire nation. And that's why we've decided to take a bold move to ensure that we do not leave any person behind and we take it as a countrywide uh, initiative. And in essence, we'll be able to measure ourselves against the targets that we've set and we'll be able to capture the anticipated emissions that will come out of our projects even before the projects commence. It's been a successful event, and I believe we'll be able to tackle these emissions going forward. Absolutely, and 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 I suppose um, you know maybe maybe you and you can you can shed some light about. I mean, I think I think that it's clear that there are you know that that different regions will will move at, at at different speeds in decarbonizing. I suppose, and and obviously as as, as Proscovia said, you know the idea about of technology sharing feels crucial to try and sort of accelerate the processes by which we can we can we can reduce uh, carbon emissions. You and how practically should we think about about the, the, this this idea of of, of different regions and, and different speeds? Yes, it was a really good question. I think you know when we think about regional differences we we often think about and talk about the just transition so you know it's really important to note that the oil and gas industry is, is going to be an essential partner in achieving and delivering on the ambitions of the the u.s sustainable development goals it's got a really important role in providing the kind of affordable and reliable energy that's that's essential for economic growth um supporting employment and, and education and, and eradication of of, of poverty and, and development of global health. Um, and so it's really important that the energy transition continues to improve access to clean and, and, and affordable energy um, and, and respect the environment and, and ensure that no one's left behind. Um, when we think about the, the kind of the, the global context of this, the number of, of, of people without access to electricity grew to over 700 million in, in 2022. Uh, and, and there were around about 2.5 billion without access to clean cooking. Um, particularly in, in the global south, that's a hugely important challenge for us. And so um, emerging markets and developing economies, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, they're, they're really expected to account for most of the growth of the world's population over the coming decades. 
uh, and will play a hugely important role as, as energy customers um, in the coming decades as well. And so there's no one size fits all to achieving an approach to a just transition. Each, each region will take its, uh, its own approach um, and that will depend on levers of economic development. It will depend on the availability of energy sources and population and energy needs. Uh, and it's really impossible to know how different technologies will evolve and when each will reach a stage of maturity to enable the, the, their widespread deployment. So each will, will really kind of deploy um, these technologies and resources um, as they emerge um, and, and, and really um, what, what, we, what we can see is that technologies like CCS and direct air capture, um, I think as uh, Proskovia touched on, will, will, will continue to become and become even more important um, for the transition, particularly in the, 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 the 2030s to 2050s. Proskovia, you always use the phrase uh, just energy transition, which I think is, is, is a really, really good one and a really important one to think about. And I think, you know, obviously... It often feels like, uh, you know, particularly say sub-Saharan Africa, there is that question around 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 what is just. I wonder what it means to you, Proskovia, that that kind of idea of justice in the in the energy transition. And of course, a just transition to me means uh, the recognition that the global South is on a different industrial industrialization curve compared to the global North. The priorities are different. Uh, for example, for Uganda, and I guess it's similar to the rest of the countries in the global south, the priority may be transforming the economies from you know, low income to middle income, while the global south and the global north, the priorities could be different because they've gone through the industrialization curve. Now, for example, if someone asks me about um, uh, energy transition, the key questions we are asking ourselves as Uganda is transition from what? Because if your reference point is some community or the rural community, they're using biomass, they're using firewood, they're using charcoal. So if I can transition those people from biomass to using LPG, that's a transition for me. If I can get access to transport from the rural communities to the urban communities to move goods. That's, you know, for me, that's a, a big, a big game changer because then I know I'll improve the productivity of that region to contribute to contribute to economic development. So in terms of a just transition, uh, certainly for us, it looks different. We want to move people from utilizing biomass for cooking to cleaner forms of energy like gas. And, and also allowing the country to be able to harness the, the revenues we are anticipating from the oil and gas industry to be able to contribute to the GDP. For example, for Uganda, we are seeing a, a contribution in excess of 50 billion by using our oil and gas resources. To be able to do import substitution, we are a landlocked country. And if we start refining our oil, we will reduce on the import bill for petroleum products. If we start uh, refining our oil, we will be able to, um, you know, to be able to provide for security of supply of petroleum products. You see how hit the landlocked countries were from the Russia-Ukraine war. The energy markets changed, and landlocked countries that the products of petro the petroleum products became too expensive. So we need to you know, think of other avenues to provide security of supply for petroleum products because they are critical 
for our economic growth. So a just transition has to look at all these different pieces. It may look different from depending on where you are, but for us, it's you know an argument for the world to recognize that it's always going to be different response uh, re- uh, reference points um, um, before we commit to a uniform standard across the globe. Uh, that's what I can really refer to as a just transition. But just to touch a bit on what Ewan highlighted on regional variances in decarbonization, uh, certainly it's going to depend uh, on a lot of factors, but we see that uh, majorly in three or four areas, whether you're developed versus underdeveloped or you know uh, emerging economies, resource availability, and we believe as Africa, we have some renewable resources such as solar that are available that we can harness from. So what we are saying is, yes, we have the oil and gas resources that will um, spur industrialization for our countries, but at the same time, we are not seated. And that's why I touched on the aspect of partnerships, technology. If we can have good technology supported you know, from the global north, to support us to invest in renewable energy resources like solar. Why not go for it? The economic factors are also going to be different. We need research and development. These are partnerships that we can secure with the developed nations so that we do not lag behind. Because trust me, Ed, if the global south doesn't decarbonize, the world will never reach net zero. Absolutely not. So we need those collaborations. And I I agree with Ewan on the submission related to the regional variances in decarbonization. Fantastic. Well, I think we're going to take a short break uh, and we'll be back in just a moment. Visit ADAPEC 2023 from the 2nd to the 5th of October in Abu Dhabi. The world's largest energy exhibition and conference will bring together more than 160,000 attendees, 2,200 exhibitors and 1,600 experts from across the energy ecosystem to explore the game-changing innovations and solutions needed to accelerate decarbonisation and create the energy system of the future today. Visit adipec.com to register now. So Proscovia, just kind of, I suppose, kind of picking up from, 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 from where we left it before, thinking about oil and gas and its role, how do you see oil and gas playing a part in the future? Of course, in our view, or in my view, um, much as there is a global agency to transition, or to, to transition to cleaner energy sources, the role of oil and gas in the future energy mix, especially for developing countries like Uganda, remains quite significant. And why am I saying this is, again, we are still on the lower part of the industrialization curve. We are seeing a lot of sustained demand, right? We are seeing a lot of, you know, need for uh, oil and gas resources to spur that industrialization. So we believe it will still play a fundamental role. And I think the same applies to the global south and the the entire world. But, of course, when we see the impact it has on the environment, on the climate, there is a call, again, for substitution. Now, of course, what I hear that most of the the countries are trying to address, or this narrative around uh, climate action, they look at the automotive 
side of things. But what we do not address, and I think we can discuss this around here, is how do we substitute the products that come off other products other than those uh, that are supporting automotive industries? How do we substitute other products that are coming off oil and gas besides the automotive side? We have petrochemicals. We have those that go into uh, pharmaceuticals. We have those that are actually having a positive impact, like fertilizers. When we look at uh, Uganda's projection, is that when we refine our resources, we are going to be converting some of the HFO into fertilizer. And inherently, this is going to spur the agriculture sector and agro-based industries, which is a positive so we believe oil and gas will still play a critical role in the future. But I think the focus is even going to be more on those areas that are less easily substituted compared to the fast-pass refined products like uh, diesel, petrol, aviation fuel, which can easily be substituted by electric vehicles. But there are others that we see that may not be easily substituted. And until we find a solution to that, the oil and gas industry will play a fundamental role. On the gas side, of course, we see gas as a bridge, if not even a destination fuel, depending on where you, where, where the reference point is, because um, we believe that if we can move people away from cutting down trees, why not transform them uh, from biomass to gas. And if gas is going to come from the oil and gas industry, then why why move away from both oil and gas? So maybe gas can be a destination fuel or a bridge fuel, depending on the reference point. Fantastic. And Ewan, what are you what are your thoughts? I mean I suppose, you know, we're looking at the the, the oil and gas and, and that kind of question around decarbonization. To what to what extent do you think uh, it's it's important and and I suppose in, in in terms of sort of staking its claim to a sort of future consumption? Great question, Ed. And I, I think to you know follow up on on Prescovia, um, is reflection that you know there, there there is no single path to to net zero, uh, and this was highlighted really well in the recent IPCC AR six reports, which describe many different pathways to reach one point five degrees by the end of the century. And, and these pathways consider a whole range of different scenarios, um, thinking of things like heavy reliance on renewables taking place globally, um, scenarios where there's a stronger emphasis on low demand for, for energy, um, scenarios where there's extensive use of carbon dioxide removals within the, the energy and industry sectors, and then different approaches to, to mitigation um, of climate impacts. And what's really important, I think, is that the oil and gas plays an important but, but different role in each of these pathways into the future. And in each of these pathways, carbon sinks, um, particularly in the second part of the century, play a, a really, really important role. So, so we then ask ourselves, well, well what, what do we need to do then? So, you know, we'll, we'll never have all of the data to predict the future with, with certainty. So we, we can't be deter deterministic when we're considering the scenarios. It's really important that when we're thinking of policies that that both families of the IPCC scenarios are taken into account. And what that means is that we, we then have to support and, and nurture the, the full suite of technologies that will support decarbonisation pathways. And that means supporting everything from electrification to hydrogen, to biofuels, synthetic fuels uh, and oil and gas with, with, uh, with CCS. 
Proscopia, I mean, I think I think Ewan's kind of set out a picture there about about the way in which uh, oil and gas can kind of, uh, I suppose, kind of compete for its, uh, its 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 place in the future and 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 the extent to which that might fit in. But I I wonder about this this kind of idea around around decarbonisation, making a way to um, I suppose secure the support that is needed. I think you know, obviously we're 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 looking at a sort of. Uh, Challenges, particularly around financing uh, for the sector. Do you think that the decarbonisation? Do you think that you know, uh, as you as you've said, you know, making that and making those claims about around around lower emissions per per barrel of oil in Uganda, for instance. Do you think that that has an impact on uh, on on those discussions with with banks, with lenders, with financiers? It's one of the the things that we we have been going through across our different projects. Uh, financing entities or institutions are looking for cleaner projects. We've seen capital flight to renewable projects compared to mainstream oil and gas projects. But I think the issue of decarbonization is quite critical for as long as you can, as long as you can show to the financing institutions that all efforts are being made within the project to address issues of decarbonization. Uh, for example, we have one of the projects where we've deployed technology to reduce um, the anticipated CO2 emissions by close to 30%. That is, that is giving investor confidence that actually we are doing whatever it takes to ensure that we reduce uh, the, the, the carbon emission, the CO2 emissions. And some of the technologies deployed, of course, include solarization across most of the facilities that's one way to do it. Uh, the, other, the other way, of course, is the risk mitigation because when we talk about these projects, you have to look at the long-term risks of hydrocarbon investments to the financiers, to yourselves as the, the people at the forefront of the, of the projects. And this also ties into the way the project relates to the communities around the projects. If you're emitting a lot of, you know, CO2 or if you're impacting the environment, cutting down trees, offsetting biodiversity um, or impacting biodiversity, it, it, it creates a lot of risk. And some of the environmental and social due diligence that is done across the projects, if it picks up uh, such parameters as being impact, having a lot of impact on the environment or even the climate, then there's lack of that appetite for the funders to give you the required capital. But I think, yes, I think if we do a lot of work around decarbonizing the projects we are dealing with, it will give us access to capital and, of course, giving stakeholder trust and confidence that actually we are doing whatever it takes to uh, reduce emissions but while doing so, we don't stop the development, which will ultimately provide the economic good that is anticipated out of those projects. But for sure, uh, for sure, we have to do a lot to get the confidence uh, from the financial sector that they can actually put the capital in projects that are doing whatever it takes uh, to curb emissions and protect 
biodiversity. And Ewan, what do you think about uh, about decarbonisation as a sort of a precondition for uh, securing finance? Yeah, I mean, so the role of finance and, and international finance is, is a hugely important one. And it's one, it's an area where we've seen a, a lot of action over the, the past couple of years. Um, the Glasgow Finance Alliance for, for Net Zero, or GFANS as it's called, is a, is a coalition of, of eight financial sector alliances. And they, they were formed as part of or during the, the, the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. Um, and, and they represent about 40% of, of global private financial assets held um, held around the world. And they've you know been doing a lot of work over the past number of years. And actually just recently this year, um, launched a um, proposed set of, of voluntary guidance for financing the early retirement of coal-fired power stations in the Asia-Pacific region, for example, as part of a a just net zero emissions transition. And in that, they're really interested in um, practical steps that, um, that, that, that can be undertaken to support financing of coal phase out. Um, coal is one of the, the largest sources of, of carbon dioxide emissions globally. And so it's really interesting to see the work of, of, of GFANS in this space. And it, and it builds on some of the work that they've, uh, they've recently and guidance that they've recently published around about um, phasing out high, emiss- um, high emitting assets guidance, um, which was released last year. So the, the finance industry is really mobilizing around this. They really want to understand the, uh, the energy intensity of, of um, the, 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 the investments that they're making. Um, and, and it's absolutely hardwired into um, the, the decision and, and, and value criteria that they're, that they're, they're assessing the performance of the assets against. Well, fantastic. Listen, I think, I think we're about out of time. So I'm, I'm going to say that thank you very much to our guests, Proscovia and you. And I really appreciated your insights today. I think there's, there's a lot of food for thought for the industry and what we've brought up here. This is the first episode of the Roads to Anapec. Next up, we're going to be talking about the energy transition and methane. So please tune in for that. Energy Voice Out Loud is the weekly podcast from Energy Voice where we are leading the global energy conversation. Feel free to sign up to our newsletter for our daily digest and follow along on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight across the energy sector. You can subscribe to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to tune in. But for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.